of us probably tried it once or twice and then thought, you know, this isn't working out so well. Think of New Year's resolutions. Um, I, I think about the first time I got a car. And it's actually the second. Because the first car I got was a, uh, what year was it? I think it was a 1992 Chevy Beretta. Two-door car. How many of you remember those? We had some reactions to that. So I bought this car. I was so excited. And I think it was officially a lemon. The day I brought it home, the alternator went bad. And the dealership ended up going halvesies on replacing that. And then it just kept having problem after problem after problem. When I was in college in Oklahoma, and the engine mounts went bad. And I mean, there were just so many random things that just kept going bad on this car. I just came to just really not like that car. And so at one point, I had some money saved up, and I went to the dealership. And I'm like, I'm going to get something else, and I want something reliable. So I went in there, and I made the mistake of explaining exactly what my situation was to the, to the uh, salesman, and he read me like a book. He figured it out. He's like, you know what? This kid wants reliability. So he brings me to this little pregnant roller skate of a car with a spoiler on the back to make it look cool, and he convinces me that, and it only had like 35,000 miles. He's like, listen, this one's still under warranty. Whatever's wrong with it, it's just going to be covered by the company. Now, remember, I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It gets to like 90 degrees all the time. This car did not have air conditioning. Okay, but you know what it was? Reliable. So he, he says, you know, you gets it, and he, he convinces it, and I'm all like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then he says, tell you what, I'll let you drive it home. You don't even have to buy it. Just drive it home. I mean, so I can just bring it back tomorrow? Yeah, no commitment at all. Today, I understand he is, he's playing psychological games with me because he understands that most people, once they have driven home in a new car, feel a sense of obligation and commitment and feel like, hey, they did something for me, now I need to do something for them, like buy this car. And so, you know, under the guise of I haven't decided yet, I drive the car home and didn't need air conditioning that evening. So I end up buying this car. And later, I ended up looking back and realizing that salesman, as I grew up, I he used so many different strategies. He did the whole thing where he goes to the, to the boss and is like, hey, I'll negotiate the price down. I want to get the price down, but the boss doesn't, you know. And he goes over there and he argues for me and comes back and, yeah, we can get it down a little. I mean, he played all the tricks on me. And now I understand those strategies. And if I was to, to look at those strategies, I'd be like, hey, I recognize that. I understand that. But at that moment, I didn't. And I bought the car. And it wasn't the worst decision I've ever made. But let me tell you, I regretted. Their I used to roll down the window, and then I would take the cardboard sun thing, and I would hold it out so that it would catch the wind and just blast in because... At the school I was going to, you had to wear a dress shirt every day. So it's like my car would be 130 in the car, and I'd be driving in long sleeves and just, I did regret, but it wasn't the worst thing ever. But what I come to think about is oftentimes we're unaware of why we're making decisions. Now, the enemy, is, as I think about New Year's resolution, we, we often stop and we think, okay, 
I have some habits I want to break. I have some behaviors that I need to stop. I have some things that I need to, to do right. And we, we get all prepped to do it. And then by January 15, we realize we're not doing it. I remember when I was growing up, we used to go to uh, the local school to swim to train for triathlons. My dad did triathlons for years and years. And he was year-round. He was there all the time. And I would go with him sometimes. In January, it would be full. And my dad would say, don't worry. By the end of January, it'll be back to normal with a few people. Why? Because people give up because they end up making those decisions. So what I want to talk about today, I want to talk about those strategies that the enemy uses to convince us to make dumb decisions. So think of it this way. I wish somebody had sat down with me and talked to me about the different ploys that salesmen would use to get me to make a decision that I probably didn't want to make. We're going to have that talk today, but we're going to call it the lies that sin tells. Okay, so here are some of the strategies that the devil has been using and unfortunately continues to use because they keep working to try and convince us to make the decision to sin. John 10.10 10 says this. It says, the thief comes but not, but to, eh, not, eh, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. We have to recognize every time sin comes, it always has the purpose of stealing, killing, and destroying. The first lie that the devil tells, and I'm sure some of us have heard this one before, nobody will know. Nobody will know. I remember when I was a little kid, I learned how to draw stars. You know, you start in the five points and you just go up and over and you can make the stars. I just thought that was the funnest thing. And my mom the very week that I discovered how to draw stars, found stars drawn all over the walls and the floor, like all over the house in pencil. And she came and said, you did it. And I was like, how did you know? I, I was like five. Like, huh, huh, how do you know it was me? I, I, I honestly, in my ignorance, thought, how could you possibly realize that it's me? But it's obvious. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. Numbers 32.23 says, But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Matthew 10.26 says, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing that is covered that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be known. Now, some of you may think this is a threat that God's going to do something to expose your, your mistake tomorrow. We don't know when. We don't know. There are some crazy stories. I heard, I heard a story about a guy who, um, I think he was being unfaithful to his wife, and there was a receipt that proved it. He threw it in the trash. The dog went and dug in the trash. That receipt stuck to the dog, and he came back in to the house. When I heard that story, I thought of that verse. But, it's not always that same way. But the Bible says, be sure your sin will find. We have to recognize that is such a gimmick of the enemy to say, oh, don't worry. You can do this and nobody else will know. First of all, you know. 
Second of all, the Bible says that in the end, we'll all be judged. Now, as a Christian, we don't, we will not be sent, we will not be separated from God as a result of our sins, but the Bible still says we're rewarded for our good works, that, that our works are tested, and those that were unworthy just burn up as chaff. So even as a Christian, your good behavior benefits you in the long run. So line number one, no one will ever know. Lie number two, a little bit will be enough, even okay. John 8, 36, or 34 through 36 says, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. We have this idea, a little bit doesn't matter. A little bit is okay. Sin is never okay. Have you ever thought about what was the, the sin that got us all in trouble? How bad was that one? Ate from the wrong tree. We, we have, well, he didn't murder anybody, didn't rob a bank. Sin is sin. The wrong thing is the wrong thing. Line number three. Once is all I need. Don't raise your hands. But when you recognize something that the enemy has used to trick you, just take note. Be like, oh, once is all I need. How many addictions have started from someone saying, I'm just going to try this once. Proverbs 26 verse 11 says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. That is the, the enemy strategy. He's just like, it's kind of like that salesman where he's like, you know what? You don't want to buy it? That's fine. Just drive it home. Just drive it home. And I drove that car home thinking, oh, I haven't committed to anything. And he knows already 95% probability he's going to keep that car now that I convinced him to drive off the lot with it. And that's what the enemy is doing. When, he's, when he gets us to think to ourselves, oh, once is all I need. Along with that is another common lie. Number four, if I do it, my curiosity or desire will be diminished, even satisfied. I mean, once I commit this sin, well, then I won't want to do it again. Oh. Do you guys remember the Frito-Lay commercials that said, bet you can't eat just one? There was an ad campaign for, for potato chips that said, bet you can't just eat one. Why? Because they understood that the salt in there just creates a craving for more. And they said, go for it. Just eat one. We know you'll be back for another one. And we think, well, I'm curious. I'm curious. And if, I'm, if I just do it once, then I'll know what it's like. No. Not at all. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 27 says, You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and were still not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea, and even then you were not satisfied. See, sin is a process, and once you get started, 
it continues to push. This is, this is where the flaw in that lie comes from. We think that the desire for sin is simply a desire. I, I want alcohol because I'm thirsty. I mean, I only want the alcohol. I'll drink the alcohol now, but then I'll, I'll, if I get drunk, I'll just get drunk on that now. But then later when I have water, I won't want any alcohol. Or a common one. Well, I'm single right now, so I'm not married. So, you know, I can, I can mess around with stuff on my computer and whatnot. Because once I'm married, then I won't want it anymore because I'll be married. Here's the problem. You think that the desire for sin is a healthy desire. And that when you get a healthy replacement, then that desire will go away. Sin creates its own appetite. So many people have had that strategy in their mind. Oh, I'm just going to sin until something better comes along, then I'll replace it and I'll have no appetite for sin anymore when something good comes along. And what they don't realize is that sin creates an appetite for sin. You look at the weird, and <clears throat> the weird fetishes and cravings and things that exist out there, sinful, perversion, weird stuff, and you're like, why do people, what, do they, do people do what? Why? Because sin created an appetite for more, for more, for more, and, and created a perverse. And pretty soon, they want things they would have never wanted. It's because it is its own appetite. And it will not, the appetites created by sin will not be satisfied by something healthy. When you give in and say, hey, I'm going to do it in order to, to satisfy my curiosity, what you actually do is you create a brand new appetite for something. It may be your appetite, your healthy appetite. In this case, we've used the example of, of before they're married. The, the healthy appetite to someday have a healthy sexual relationship with your spouse may be what inspires you to try sin, but then you've birthed a new appetite for something that isn't the healthy thing that initially caught your attention. Sin creates its own appetite. James chapter 1, verse 14 and through 18 says this. Then when sin has conceived, it gives, or excuse me, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, with its full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What is it? There is a process. Sin starts with a desire, and that desire could be a healthy desire. But when we, we follow it in an unhealthy way, it births a process. There's a growth where sin brings forth death, the Bible says. And it is not a healthy appetite. Number five. Number five. It's not a big deal. I mean, it's not a big deal. You know, I, I stole from someone... If I stole from someone who had very little, well, that would be a big deal. But because I'm stealing from my company, well, they have plenty of staplers. So, no big deal. No big deal. Listen to what James chapter 2, verse 8 says. If you really fulfill, fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. 
and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The, the, the idea, sin is the choice to do what you know is wrong. And the Bible says, whether you choose to do that instead of this, you still blew it. It's still sin. And, and we have this idea that, that it's all relative. You know what? My sin, I mean, I know it's wrong, but mine's just not a big deal. I steal staplers. You, you stole $1,000. I mean, haha, messed up. My stapler was $19.99. In fact, if it was on sale, it's only $9.99, so it's not that big a deal. We have that mindset. And I always use the example of the carpet. If you look down at the carpet, does anybody ever bother to think which one of the strands is taller than the other? It's just like, it's not here. This is, this is the perfection. And we're down there like these carpet strands saying, I'm, I'm taller than you are, you're sure. You know. And God's like, no, you need my help to achieve perfection. Nobody can do it all on their own. That's when comparison comes in. Lie number six is to compare and to say, well, at least I'm not doing that. I'm, my, I'm okay because when I compare myself to so-and-so, well, then, then it's all right. Luke chapter 18, verse 10 says this. Jesus is telling this story. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, who was big into doing things right, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with, him, with himself. It's interesting, he says, he prayed with himself. Who was he praying to? Himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That is, the tax collector was forgiven. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What I get from this verse is that when God looks down and sees me comparing myself, exalting myself by saying to myself, well, you know, at least I didn't do that. At least I didn't do what they did. God looks down, and he is, he is probably more repulsed by my comparison than their sin. He says, that man who, who was humble, who didn't compare himself, who just recognized, hey, there is flaws, there is error in what I was doing, please forgive me. That's the person who was forgiven. Lie number seven, 
Anybody recognize any of these lies? Ever heard any of them before? Lie number seven. God understands I need slash deserve to do this. I, it blows my mind that this ever happens, much less how often I have heard people say, well, God just understands I need this. Sometimes it turns out to be somebody even, even in ministry who says, you know, I need, I'm, I'm thinking of one guy from 20-some years ago who, who, who argued. You know what? God understands my wife. She doesn't cut it. So he wants me to be happy with this other person so that then I can minister better. What? No. No. That is not the way it works. Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. If you think that, you know what, God, God understands I just need to fib on my taxes because I need that deduction. Or I need to qualify for such and such a program, and so I lie to get into it. But, but God understands I need that. No. First of all, you don't need that. God will bless your honesty. He will provide for you. There is a way for you to be right in God's eyes and still be blessed. I promise you, you do not have to lie to get into such and such a program, to receive such and such a benefit, to get back such and such a tax return, to be able to, to stay employed in such and such a place. You do not have to lie, sin, steal, break, do whatever it is that you know is wrong. God does not show favoritism. That's good news for us. That's good news because that means he will bless you the same as he has blessed everyone else. It also means that sin for them is also sin. Like you don't get a free pass just because of what you've done. And it's obvious when I stand up here and talk about it, but how many of you realize that the devil makes these things sound so attractive sometimes that in the moment you're like, yeah, I kind of think maybe that he probably doesn't care if I do this because no, nope. I thought I was going to be slow or it's fast, so I'm, I'm speeding through. I'm realizing I'm doing pretty good. Number eight, I'll just make up for this sin by doing extra good in a different area of my life. You know, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to give in the offering. I'll do this, and then I'm going to volunteer. I'll do this, and then. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. God made a very big deal out of this. He said, I don't want anyone thinking that what they do is earning 
their right standing with me. That means if I blow it, I can't unblow it by earning it back. I don't make a mistake, do something stupid, wrong, intentional over here, and then give a bigger offering. When I volunteer my time, that doesn't give me brownie points with which to spend. Indulgences. There was a time many years ago when that became a thing. When, when people would pay money to the church in advance for sins they planned to commit. Be like, hey, so I was thinking about doing this or that. What will it cost me? And people would say, well, for that one, you know, two weeks salary. Okay. No. God says very clearly, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Remember King Saul? King Saul was told by the prophet Samuel what to do. He said, you're going to go and you're going to defeat this certain uh, city. And one of the things that would regularly happen is when the army would go in, they would take the spoil. They'd take the cattle. They would take all of that stuff, and that would be like their wages. And God told Saul, he said, this first city is like an offering to me. Don't keep the cattle. Don't keep all of that. I want you to destroy it entirely as an offering. And then the next city you take, then you're going to get that. So Saul shows up and decides, man, this stuff looks good. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 20 says, and Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission which the Lord sent me to, and I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took plunder, sheep and oxen, and the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Listen to his argument. God said, what I want you to do is don't take it. And he said, well, we took it to give it to you. We decided we would take it, and then we're going to give it to you later. Like, doesn't that make up for it? Like, can't I just, like, do wrong and then do something right later, and then it's like I never did anything wrong? If, if I disobey and bring it back? And, and Saul is, is saying, well, I did part of what you told me to do. Well, yeah, there was a part that I knew I wasn't supposed to do, and I did it anyway, but I have a good reason. I was going to give some of that to you. And look at Saul's, or Samuel on behalf of God in his response. He says, has the Lord as great of delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, Saul was saying, hey, we're going to sacrifice this stuff to you later. And he says, no, the best thing is to just obey. Just do what you knew was right in the first place. Don't disobey, then planning to earn it back later. And he says, and to heed, then the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You know, we read right past that 
But for Saul, that was a life-changing decision. He was king. God had promised him the possibility of, of having his, his children raised. It was God's desire originally that Saul have a dynasty. But Saul's choices disqualified him. When? When he thought he could disobey and then earn it back later. I'm going to plan to do something good with this. You know, I'll just lie in my taxes and then I'll give a really big offering. No, that's not how it works. And there's so many different ways that, that the devil packages this and says, you know, if you do this, well, then, then you can, if, if, you, if you lie to keep this job or lie to get this job, well, think of all the good you'll be able to do, you know, having that great income and blah, 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 blah. And God says, no. To obey is better than sacrifice. Doing what you know is right is better than whatever planned retribution you have. Very similar lie that comes along with that is that the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. It's the same, it's kind of a similar concept. You know, if it turns out okay, it'll be right. You know, I can lie about this because if I don't, if I tell the truth, well, then there's so many possible things that could go wrong. I, I might upset this person and, or I might get in trouble or, or what, but I'll, just, I'll just lie because the ends justifies the means. Psalms chapter 15, verse 4 through 5. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. The Bible says that God honors those who swear to their own hurt and do not change. What does that mean? That means you promised to do something. And then later it turns out it's not going to be convenient. You know, I, I know I said I would do that, but I didn't realize it was going to cost me money. I didn't realize it was going to be that hard. God says he blesses those, he honors those who keep their word, who say in advance, you know what? I'm not going to change just to get the end result that I wanted. If I committed to something, I'm going to hold true to it. I'm going to do it no matter what. Number 10. You need to do this to understand it. I remember in high school having an argument with, a fr my, with my friend um, about this, and he was talking about, you know what? How can I evangelize people who are struggling with these things and who are in this lifestyle and who are having these issues if I've never experienced it. I think I need to do that. I need to go in. Then I can reach them better. Then I'll, I'll be more empathetic. Then I can, you know, I think I need, to, I need to experience this to understand it. Maybe I need to do this to know why I should avoid it. And then 
Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's so much there. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What do we want? We want to be able to test and approve and know what God's will is. How many of you would agree? I want to know what is right. This verse says, in order to reach the place where you can see and know what's right, you have to start by choosing not to conform to this world. Because what happens when you conform to the world? Your judgment gets messed up. I remember one time McDonald's was giving out sunglasses with Happy Meals. And we got several pairs at our house. Now, obviously, these were like, I don't know, this is like from the 90s at McDonald's. These were not like fancy blue blockers. They were not the kind that you put on and suddenly the world looks brighter. You know, it's just a, like food, you know, it's just dye in some plastic that just makes everything a little bit darker. And I remember we had gotten a couple of different pairs. And if you put on one, you could still see. Everything was a little darker, which wasn't a problem if you were outside. But if you were inside, it's whatever. You put on another pair and everything got darker. And I, the, the analogy that always comes to my mind is that's what choosing to sin is like. Each time you make a decision to sin, your perception your judgment, your ability to know what is right from wrong is clouded. And you make one decision, and you're, you kind of walk around, you're like, hey, I can still see. I still know what's going on. I can still tell right from wrong. Has anyone ever seen someone, better yet, have you ever been preached at by somebody for something? And then fast forward months or years, and they're doing it? And you're like, wait a minute, you were the one who was explaining to me why I shouldn't be dating someone who isn't a Christian, and now you're doing that? You mean, wait a minute, you're the one who told me, you got on my case for, for this, you know, when I was going to do this, or when I considered lying, and when I considered, now you're doing that? And they're like, oh, but it's different now. Why? Because their judgment is gone. It's not that they didn't know what was right. It's that they no longer can see what is right because the choice to compromise and disobey blinds us. And each time we choose, knowingly choose to do wrong, it's like our judgment is clouded. It's like putting another pair of those cheap McDonald's sunglasses on and then we put another pair on and then, then you can't see clearly enough so you make another one of those decisions and pretty soon you've got so many layers of clouded judgment that what was obviously obvious to you before is no longer clear. And you're walking around making really stupid decisions and that you knew were wrong. But each decision, so let's read that verse again. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't do what is wrong just because the world is doing it. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is when, when you resist doing what is wrong just because the world is doing it, but when you transform your perspective based on the scripture, then you will be able to see, test, and recognize what is God's will, what is pleasing, and, and what is right. The more right decisions you make, the more clearly you will see what the right decision is. The more times you choose to compromise, the more clouded your judgment becomes. John chapter 17, verse 6 says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. God says, don't be of the world. Don't use their standard. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Abstain from all appearances of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number 11. I'll sin now and ask forgiveness later. I'm going to sin now and ask forgiveness later. Uh, one of my friends in high school, and, and he's given me permission to tell this story. I don't usually include his name. But um, he, <laughs> he and I uh, were, were, we went to elementary together. We lived across the street from each other, and then he moved away, and, and he went off to a different school for a while, and then he came back, and we were, I don't know, 17, something like that. He could drive. I didn't have a car yet. I can't remember if I had my license. He was a, I must have because he was, he's younger than me. So we were around 17 years old, and he had come back to our school, and he says to me one one fall Friday, he says, hey, um, tonight there's a football game at the school I used to go to, and some of the friends that I used to have there um, told me about a party they're having at their house. And he decided, he's like, I, I say it this way, he was on a hormone high because he was just really, really wanting to make a dumb decision. And he says to me, he says, I am going to go to that party and I'm going to find somebody. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to find someone else who's drunk, and I'm going to finally lose my virginity. And I'm like, you, you know better than that. And he starts to argue with me. Now, I personally think the whole reason he brought it up to me was part, you know, it's kind of like the you know, good guy on the shoulder and the bad guy. Like the good guy was like, hey, if we tell Josh, he'll try to talk us out of it. So that's what he did. He kind of like let me in on the plan he had. And I started arguing. And he's arguing back to me. He says, but listen, you know, it's just a piece of paper. Marriage is just a paper. What difference does it make? And blah, 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 blah. And you know what? I can just do this and I'll just ask forgiveness later. Hey, great plan. I'm just going to like do this dumb thing. And then when it's over, I'll just ask forgiveness. And then everything will be just fine. Right? And so we start going back and forth, and I'm arguing with him. And, and I said, you know, hey, what if I come with you to the game tonight? He's like, sure, yeah, you can come. Knowing that I didn't have a car, so if I was with him, you know, I'm going I'm to figure out. I'm going to run interference. I'm going to make sure he can't succeed. And when he agreed to let me come along, I think that he had already conceded in a, in a way in his mind. We get to the, to the game, and afterwards he says, all right, Josh, I've decided I'm not going to 
go through with that, but I still want to go to this party. I'm like, all right. But, you know, let's not stay long. So he, he's like, I still want to see my friends, and I've got some friends I'm kind of excited to see, so we'll just go see them. We show up. Now, I had never been to one of these parties, and they, they were calling it a kegger, and there weren't any kegs. It was just, but these kids start showing up. They're already drunk, high, whatever, inebriated. And they're showing up, and they had mowed a strip into a field and put a bunch of boards out there, and there was just a campfire out there, and that was it. It was just stand around, be drunk, and look at the fire. But they hadn't started the fire yet, and there were a couple of kids smoking, and I hate the smell of cigarette smoke. So as long as I could keep my eye on my buddy, um, somebody said, well, we got to go start this fire. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll help with them. We get out there. There's two-by-fours, and this kid, like, already, you know, woo, he lights a match, and he puts it next to the two-by-four. This isn't working. Let's get some gasoline. So they go get, like, you know, a five-gallon thing of gasoline, bring that red container with the orange snout. You can all picture it, you know. Bring that out, pour that all over the, the fireplace, take the match, whoosh, sure enough, it lights. Then all of these kids start coming around. They're standing around, and I'm just, like, watching them and watching my buddy, and, and I'm just waiting to see what... You know, what's going to happen? I'm watching him. He was being good. Good news. He was being good. And uh, so then some drunk kid gets a hold of the gas can and walks up to the fire and starts dousing the fire with gas. And every time he pours gas on it, the fire lights up. He's like, <laughs> you know, and he just thinks this is so funny. I am like backing away. I'm like, when this goes off, like, I don't want to be one of the many burnt teenagers who they are trying to take to the, to the ER. And I'm just, like, backing away from this. Sure enough, he does this two or three times, and then fire catches on to the tip of the gallon container. So there's flame on the flickering on the little yellow snout, snout there. He's like, ah, beep, beep, and he starts cussing, and he's swinging it around. And have you ever taken a hose, and you, like, make S's of water around on the the, the the grass or whatever. He's doing that, but these are S's of fire. He's like, whoosh, whoosh. And it's just, the gasoline is pouring out through the flame, lighting and making stripes all over the ground. And then he goes like this, whoosh, whoosh. And up the flames go, up his leg, across his arm and over his shoulders. Now he's on fire. He goes, ah! He takes the can and he throws it up and behind him. I don't know if an angel put it out or how this happened, but it landed in such a way that the flame went out on the can, and he is standing there on fire. And somebody says, stop, drop. He forgets to roll. So he just drops to the ground, boom, and he's just laying there on fire. And some of his friends come up and pat, pat him down. They get the, the, the fire out. He got some minor burns. I don't, you know, they didn't, I didn't stick around long enough to inspect them really well, but I went and found my buddy. I was like, you know, before we end up, like, someone ends up having to call the cops, and they're like, let's, let's go. And we left. Uh, years later, at his wedding, he said, thank you, I'm making it to my wedding day pure thanks to you. He had decided and then continued forward. Story ends well, but it still reminds me of that lie. I'm going to 
sin now, and then I'll ask forgiveness. Romans 4, 6, verse 1 through 4 says, basically addresses that exact same thing. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Hey, if you know God is forgiving, should you just sin to give him a chance to forgive? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That is just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, also, we should walk in this newness of life. The Living Bible says the same thing, but I'm going to read that translation. It says, well then, shall we just keep on sinning so that God can keep on showing us more and more kindness and forgiveness? Of course not. Should we keep on sinning when we don't have to? For sin's power over us was broken when we became Christians and were baptized to become part of Jesus Christ. Through his death and the power of your sinful nature was shattered. Your old sin-loving nature was buried with him by baptism when he died. And when God the Father with glorious power brought him back to life again, you were given his wonderful new life to enjoy. Basically, the answer is no. If you are free from the control of sin, why would you choose to go back to it? I think of it this way. If, if someone was addicted, like they were trying so hard to break, let's, let's just use uh, like nicotine. If they are addicted to nicotine and they finally break free and you say to them, you know what? You were addicted and now you're not. Why not just do it again? If you know you can get free from addiction, why not just keep getting addicted every once in a while and come back? No, if, if they were bound and got free, they will recognize, you know what? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to re-enslave myself to something that I was once enslaved to? When we have a, a, a healthy understanding, that's how we will look at sin. When we have a healthy perspective, it's like, no, I'm not... I'm not going to sin to be forgiven. I'm going to enjoy being free. Along with that, the last lie, well, no, I've got two more, is it will be easy to stop, or I can stop anytime, so why not later? Why not later? If I can stop anytime, why not later? Ephesians 4, 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. When we choose sin, we are giving a place to the devil. The, 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 there's a saying that says, the best time to plant an oak tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Now, don't wait. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Before the end of the day, get right. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may have something to give him who is in need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, and that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." So much in that verse. So much. But we're focusing on 
don't, don't fall for, hey, I can, I can stop anytime, so why not later? The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 26, it says, if you are angry, do not sin by nursing your grudge. Don't let the sun go down on you still angry. Get over it quickly, for when you are angry, you give a mighty foothold to the devil. How many ways that we give us a place for the devil to work from in our lives? Lastly, the idea that sin will bring better results. I have to do this or I won't make any sales. If I don't do this, things won't work out. Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24 says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Operable moment word there is a season. Yes, sin can look appealing for a season. There can be short-term results that look more attractive. But we have to see farther down the road and recognize that is not the case. Proverbs 20:17 says, "Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth will be filled with gravel." It's like, "Oh yeah, this is this this feels good for the moment, but it will end up being gravel in your mouth." Proverbs 10:2 says, "Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers you from death." Proverbs 11:18, "The wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he sows Righteousness, he who sows righteousness, reaps a sure reward. I want to close in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. It is mocking God to think that what we do has no effect, no consequences. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. God says, don't think that your actions don't matter. Don't mock God. The way he set up the world, cause, effect, principles. He says, don't think it doesn't matter. And know that you should not grow weary in doing good, which is doing what is right, because in due season, not instantaneously in every moment, in every situation, but in due season, you will reap the reward if you do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Second Thessalonians 3.13 But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Everybody has sinned. I'm not, like, we know that. We've talked, the Bible says that all have fallen sin and fallen, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. We know that, and we understand that God forgives us when we ask. How many of you have accepted God's forgiveness? You know that your sins are forgiven. I didn't talk about this to try and condemn people. 
as we come into this season and we're, we're thinking, how do I live a godly life? How do I attain desirable results and God's blessing in my life? I wanted us to look and, and recognize some of the ways that the devil encourages us, tricks us into making stupid decisions. But the very foundation needs to be in accepting God's forgiveness. Because no matter who's here, all of us have already blown it. And we need that forgiveness. And most of you raised your hand and said you have it. If you're watching online today and you don't know that you've been forgiven by God, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus died on the cross and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. I want to offer that. If you guys would take a moment and close your eyes just for a minute, if you're here and you want that forgiveness, if you're watching online and you want that forgiveness, I want to ask you to raise your hand right now. We're going to pray a prayer together. I see that hand. Let's all pray together. Say, Dear God, I believe Jesus died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. I believe he rose from the dead. And that when I die, I can live eternally with you. I make you the Lord of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen.